from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I think we have to really be careful not to, you know, jump to conclusions about who is redeemable and who isn't redeemable. We have to learn to think about people who engage even in violent behavior as people who have a history, who have a backstory, who have an enormous amount of suffering usually. What we do is we look at the whole person um, for both the survivor of that harm and the person who's responsible for that harm. And that's what's necessary if we really want to create and break the cycle of violence. I'm Sarah Fenske. As statewide policy and advocacy director for the St. Louis Office of the Bail Project, Mike Milton helped people get out of jail as they awaited trial, nearly 4,000 of them, in fact. Now Mike Milton has left that job to start something new. It's called the Freedom Community Center, and working with the National Vera Institute, the St. Louis Circuit Attorney's Office, and the University of Missouri-St. Louis, he hopes to help St. Louis break the cycle of violence and find true healing. In just a moment, we'll hear from John Nanny, Associate Director of Clinical Training at UMSL, to hear about his role in this project. But first, let's hear from Mike Milton. Mike is now the founder and CEO of the Freedom Community Center. Mike, welcome back. And thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Appreciate it. So, Mike, the Freedom Community Center, you have some big goals for this. How exactly are you going to do that? Yeah, I mean, before I get into that, I, I just I just want to give a little bit of a context of, of why we got here. And I think that I, that I set us up to make a lot of sense about what we want to do at FCC. Sure. So at the Bail Project, we've been able to do some pretty amazing things across the city. Um, like you said, post-bail for close to 4,000 people. But really, the, the most thing that I'm proud about is just kind of being part of this shift around how do we think about public safety and how do we not rely on incarceration, specifically pretrial incarceration? Mm-hmm. So about 4% at two, in 2018, about 4% of people were released on their own recognizance, which meant that 96% of people were held on unaffordable cash bail. And it was clear that we depended on, on incarceration and incarceration was not making our city more safe. Mm-hmm. St. Louis is tenth high, has the 10th highest incarceration rate in the world, but yet we're consistently top three most dangerous cities in America per capita. And so um, the Freedom Community Center was really birthed out of this idea that we have to rethink about how we address these problems. Um, and then also we have to think about um, violence more broadly, and that includes state violence. And so for us, it means that incarceration doesn't just not solve crime or not uh, in, uh, decrease violence, but it also encourages and generates violence. And so for us, it's about breaking that cycle and creating new cycles that actually keeps us safe. And you're doing that through something you call the Free Us Project. Tell us mm-hmm. how, how this is going to work. Sure, sure. So FCC consists of three main pillars. Um, the first pillar is building community, um, building power, which, and, and for us, we think about trauma um, and the response to the right response to trauma being um, power. And so for us, it's about creating community of those who are impacted by violence and survivors of violence. And that's, that includes violence that, that happens in our living rooms and violence that also happens to us via the state, um, poverty, incarceration, um, Uh, police brutality. And so for us, it's about building that community and movement of survivors of harm so that together we can answer the question of what does it mean to be safe. And then the second bucket of work 
is um, exactly what we just talked about, the Free Us Project, where we create what we call our transformative practices, where we create alternatives to the legal system, knowing that the legal system creates more violence and generates more violence, and actually have a, a system that's centered around actual true accountability and not punishment. And so Free Us, um, what we do is we take a survivor-centered approach. Um, we uh, first... We, we first consult with the person who's, a, who's the survivor of harm and make sure that we can do anything that they, that they need in order for them to be safe and also ask them if they're willing to be a part of a process in which um, fosters a, a, a sense of repair and, and reconciliation between the person who did the harm. Um, and that process is eight to 15 months of deep accountability process with the person who's responsible for that harm, um, centered around anti-violence, centered around restorative justice and centered around relationship because we know that relationship is the real transformative a transformative agent um, so that we can change our behaviors and actually become sustainable healthy community members all um, at the hands or not at the hands but all driven by the survivor um, and what needs to happen in order in order for them to repair what they've done so what we'd think of typically as the victim and the perpetrator they mm -hmm. would both be here working together to get to a place of, of healing yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But one of the things that we learned at the Bail Project was that so many people um, who actually called us and asked us for bail assistance were those who, who called the police on the person that they're asking for the bail assistance for. And hmm. so, so they came um, to bail out the person where they yeah. needed police assistance. <laughs> okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. And so that, that, that sparked our curiosity. Um, why is that? Why, why did that happen? And so we just start asking questions to survivors of harm. And we learned that survivors of harm are actually pragmatic. They know that incarceration does not lead to transformative change or long-term change. At that moment, what they needed, we heard stories like at that moment, what they needed was de-escalation. They did not know that they were signing up for someone that they love to be in incarceration for eight years. And then secondly, they, they want to be done with this. Pro they, they don't want to go through this whole process of being subpoenaed and testifying and going to court and, and being re-traumatized from that situation over and over again. And so for us, we, we heavily consider the voices of those who are impacted by violence. Um, and if they want that role to repair, then we want to provide that for them. Okay. And so then they're committing to this process, and that would then divert uh, the quote-unquote perpetrator. They would be outside the formal court process and instead be working within your process. Absolutely. Yeah, we don't call them perpetrators. We call them people responsible for harm. We think of even those who do harm, um, typically are those who are survivors of harm themselves. And so for us, um, we don't we don't put them in boxes. We don't criminalize them. We don't do any of that. What we do is we look at the whole person um, for both the survivor of that harm and the person who's responsible for that harm. And that's what's necessary if we really want to create and break the cycle of violence. So in order to divert these cases from the criminal justice system, you needed buy-in from the St. Louis Circuit Attorney's Office. And, and they confirmed for us they are on board for this. They gave us a statement. Um, it reads in part, the circuit attorney is committed to implementing innovative ways to hold individuals accountable that lead to increased long-term public safety. Currently, we're working with national organizations like Vera Institute and local so social service providers to implement victim-centric re 
restorative justice programs. These programs emphasize offender accountability for wrongdoers, respect for participants, and keeping the victim central throughout the process to repair the relationship between the wrongdoer and victim and reduce future criminal behavior. And another key partner for you in this is UMSL. And that comes in the form here of John Nanny. He is director of the University of Missouri St. Louis's Community Psychological Service. He's also an associate clinical professor and the associate director of clinical training in the Department of Psychological Services at UMSL. And he joins us now. John Nanny, welcome. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So, John, give us, give us just a quick overview. What does UMSL's Community Psychological Service do, and, and what will it be doing in this program? So, generally speaking, we're the uh, training clinic for the doctoral program in clinical psychology here at UMSL. So, we have a PhD program here where we train uh, graduate students. These are all doctoral students. We had about a 200 applications for five spots. Well, uh, So, this is a really, you know, this, it's hard to get in here. It's hard to be a clinical psychologist. Our main goal is to provide the you know general training uh, that the students need in order to be able to kind of go forward both as clinicians but also as supervisors and folks who design interventions, folks who are kind of you know coordinating mental health services. And so you know we're a generalist program and a generalist training clinic. So I supervise all kinds of stuff. Uh, one of the things that I've been most interested in, uh, both uh, going back to my graduate school days at UMSL, is how do we, you know, best utilize our knowledge about uh, PTSD and trauma to reduce uh, instances of violence, particularly amongst the communities in which it most affects, who are most affected by violence and gun violence, and you know, we don't really always think about the fact that the reality of gun violence in America is, you know, it's marginalized African-American communities, usually poor people of color, um, who are caught in a, a cycle. And um, they experience trauma. They usually, from a very early age, um, many of the most harrowing stories I've ever heard, uh, and I've heard a lot of harrowing stories over the years, mm -hmm. uh, come from people who, you know, if you just looked at the what they just did the other day, you would think they were monsters. And it, it's easy to think of people as monsters uh, when the reality is is that it's much more complicated. Um, there are social and psychological forces that contribute to people engaging in, in violent behavior. And you know we have to learn to think about people who engage even in violent behavior as people who have a history, who have a backstory, who have an enormous amount of suffering usually. And, and that suffering really is one of the primary determinants, I think, of, uh, of, of the tendency to engage in violence. And so we, you know, we know the you know, variety of ways in which trauma can contribute to propensities to violence. Uh, there are a number of different mechanisms um, by which this happens. And, and so one of the things that we're able to do here at UMSL is to really identify those mechanisms and then utilize the kind of the most state-of-the-art evidence-based treatments to to address those. Um, this is something that I personally been working on for a number of years when as a, I did a uh, postdoctoral fellowship in New Orleans with victims of gun violence with the you know our job was to try to figure out something to do while they were in the hospital to reduce their uh, chances of engaging in future violence with the recognition that you know it, it's you can't really divide people up into harm to responsible you, you know the, the, the victims and the perpetrators because for most of the folks who are caught up in this cycle you know this week they're you know, harm parties and next week they're responsible parties and, you know, mm -hmm. it's probably going to, you know, shift again in six months. And 
And so anyway, our, our job is to really identify that history of victimization, that history of trauma, the way exactly that that contributes to the individual's uh, propensities or, or tendencies to engage in violence, and then to you know, directly address those using the most uh, you know, advanced therapies that we have. And you know, we're, we're lucky at Amazol to have this really you know, long-standing uh, history of excellence in, in particularly in, in trauma focused treatment and, and research regarding uh, trauma-focused treatment. One of the gold standard treatments for PTSD, uh, cognitive processing therapy that kind of serves as the, the kind of heart of, of our kind of intervention model was developed here at Umsel about 30 years ago. And um, that legacy has meant that we have 30 years of students and postdoctoral fellows and professors who have gone out across the United States throughout the VA National Center for PTSD, throughout you know all kinds of international organizations the head the president of the primary international organization uh, that studies trauma and PTSD is an UMSL graduate uh, this year and so you know we have this legacy that we're able to draw on in terms of being able to provide really advanced really state-of-the-art um, treatments and, and these and treatments I mean these are going to be ongoing this isn't just that that somebody has a couple of a couple of sessions um, Mike you mentioned this is an 8 to 15 month process in some ways does this ask as much of participants as what they might be asked going through a court process and, and emotionally maybe even more Mm. Yeah, I mean, we designed this process to be intensive. What we know is that um, the average length of, of stay inside of the jail right now is about 344 days. And so people can be can be in pretrial detention for that whole time, losing everything, right? Mm -hmm. um, housing, cars, access to employment, all of those things, right? Plunging them into devastation. But our process, um, which is which is, again, designed to be intensive, is meant to really get to the root of why someone may have chosen violence, right? And also figure out um, and work with them collaboratively to to do the hard labor to never do that violence again. And so for us, um, if, even if a person um, needs more than the 15 months, we will continue. For us, it, it's, it's about the relationship aspects of it, mm -hmm. the type of treatment that's necessary, and the, the necessary pieces, um, social pieces that need to be put in place so that a person can no longer choose violence but choose uh, other options and learning those options. So, John, I think a big question that people on the outside looking in at this project would be, how do you make sure you give, you're not giving a second chance to somebody who's a psychopath or, or would harm their victim? Um, what role does assessment play in that? Yeah, it's it's one of the other um, you know expertise areas that we have here at Umsel is in psychological assessment, and I spend probably more time doing personality assessment than anything else, supervising personality assessment. And so, after you know 15 years of of that, I can spot um, psychopaths pretty pretty quickly, um, and people with antisocial personality and things like that. But I think we have to really be careful not to you know jump to conclusions about who is redeemable and who isn't redeemable. I mm -hmm. think part of my part of my job is to be realistic about that and you know obviously I have a I have an obligation as a licensed psychologist to protect the public and and I will do that uh, in terms of being able to you know say I don't you know this is not going to work this is someone who's uh, who has a, a different orientation to other people than when we would like and um, but at the same time, I think, you know, it's important to try to, you know, put, cast aside or at least put, a, you know, put in brackets our tendency to assume the worst about people who we are, who are identified as being violent. Mm -hmm. And particularly when it intersects with race 
and class and our beliefs about who is a uh, you know who's a good person and who's not a good person and and the way in which those kinds of ideologies kind of trickle into our thinking are, are insidious and uh, it's really important to guard against that in terms of making these judgments about you know who is or who isn't redeemable and mm-hmm. I, it almost when I say that out loud it almost feels like it's like oh, who put me in this position uh, it's is that my place but in, to some extent it is my place and and we'll you know we'll play that role but we'll play it in a very uh, sensitive and thoughtful way in terms of trying to provide as many opportunities as as we think is you know, as we think are feasible and, and, you know, prudent. So, so Mike, in our final minute or so here, I know you're just getting this started, but you have some big plans for the next three years. How many people are you hoping to serve and, and how fast are you planning to ramp up? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a great question. Um, for us, you know, right now, we, we, we think about around 25 families um, that we can work with specifically. Um, and that that's a range of, you know, how many people want to be a part of that process. It can be uh, the, the children, the mother, it could be whoever, right? And so for us, we try to open up our scope to anyone who wants that type of support. Um, specifically, we think about um, this being intentional work that takes really a deep dive in, intensi- in intensity. And so for us, it's not about the mass per se. For us, it's about the the quantity and the, the amount of, of of change that we can do together. And so that's the way that we think about our clientele um, specifically. And and then we also think about that in terms of so many people being in jail right now, held on unaffordable cash bail or have no bail at all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what we've learned even at the bail project is that so many people can wait in these in, in these jail cells for so long and then the case ultimately get dismissed. And so for us, it's about making sure that our, our model is data driven, proven uh, and, it, and it's qualitative and we have the, the type of quantity, I mean, the type of um, intensive support that we need and that we can scale and figure out ways in which we can continue to divert people away from incarceration and into an actual community-based solution. Well, Mike Milton, it all sounds so exciting, and and we wish you the best of luck as you launch this. I can see this could just be a radical change for St. Louis, and it's going to be great to watch this um, as you build it from the ground up. Thank you. And Mike, again, is the founder and CEO of the new Freedom Community Center. You can find more information about that at freedomstl.org. We also have a link on our website. And John Nanny, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Sarah. And John, again, is the director of the University of Missouri-St. Louis's Community Psychological Service. He's also an associate clinical professor and the associate director of clinical training in the Department of Psychological Services. Uh, we also encourage you to check out Freedom STL. Before we wrap up for the weekend, we want to share your perspectives on one of the biggest questions of the week. We asked if you're comfortable following the CDC's new guidance on masking and how you decide whether to mask up. We received many thoughtful comments and suggestions. Let's listen to a few of them. Hi, my name is David, and I live in South St. Louis County. I am still wearing a mask in public, so is my wife, especially if we're in large crowds. We haven't really decided yet if we're outside. We tend to think that we'll take them off. But if we're going into stores or buildings, we are, and we want our children to continue to wear masks because they're age four and two, and they can't get vaccinated yet. And I think that's what concerns us the most right now is taking our kids' places 
or they'll be around lots of people unmasked where we don't know if people who are unmasked actually have been vaccinated or if they just took their masks off because they wanted to. My name is Tina, and um, I'm calling to say that, yes, I am comfortable with the CDC guidelines for the dropping of the masks if you're fully vaccinated. Um, I believe the CDC when they say that it's safe to do so. My one concern is people who take advantage of it that have not been fully vaccinated that will just go into places um, without a mask on because I know they're not really, you know, checking your uh, card at the door. Harry Toder, University City. Um, I plan to continue using my mask just to err on the side of caution because I have heard about these um, breakthrough infections, I think they call them. So in other words, the vaccine is not perfect. Secondly, uh, I've come to understand that uh, masking protects people against other respiratory ailments such as the flu. So from my point of view, there's nothing lost and everything gained by continuing to wear the mask. My name is Joshua Phelps, and I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. A uh, short answer for me would be yes. As uh, If a business requires uh, a mask, I will wear it with no questions asked. Uh, but if a business says I don't have to, uh, then I won't wear a mask because I trust the vaccine to protect me. This is Lillian Dodenhoff. I'm still concerned with carrying the virus and shedding it to others, such as immunocompromised or unable to vaccinate people or their children or spouses and family of them. So unless I'm in a personal group of vaccinated people I know, I want to keep my mask on in public spaces to be generous to those who can't get vaccinated and for public workers who can't choose who they engage with. My name is Riley. I'm a healthcare professional in Waterloo, Illinois. Um, and my opinion on the mask wearing mandate being lifted from the CDC, I think it's really subjective. And I kind of want to draw attention to the amount of social pressure that I feel went into the making of this decision. As we draw nearer and nearer to summertime, you know, President Biden has said, we hope to have barbecues uh, on the 4th of July. Um, but America has this fascination with herd immunity, but we're nowhere near those numbers that are suitable for herd immunity. So the dynamic of social pressure plus our fascination with herd immunity, I think, kind of contributed to this decision. But I still think it's definitely a best judgment sort of scenario. It's definitely by no means uh, everything goes. Um, use your best judgment, people. Hi, my name's Sheila. I live in O'Fallon, Missouri. I used to wear two masks. But since the CDC guideline, I will go down to one, but I won't wear, I, I don't know who's vaccinated or not, so I don't plan on giving up my mask. My name is Stephen Alcantara. I live in Alton, Illinois. Um, ultimately, I have an understanding that the CDC very much is wanting to get people vaccinated. And it's more my theory that they are using this as a way to get people vaccinated so that they don't have to wear masks. But at the end of the day, I also still believe in mask compliance, and I'm personally going to be wearing a mask, um, even though I'm vaccinated wherever I can. And we want to thank the many listeners around the region who took the time to leave us a voicemail or write to us on social media about this important topic. 
St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.